Welcome to the Fierce Mothers podcast, where we help black and brown women find guidance and inspiration every week. We are so excited to have you listen in. I'm your host, Gochi Onyewu. Today, I am talking to the amazing Oluwatoyi Ajilore Chukwemeka. Oluwatoyi is an education researcher and professional. She works in the convergence of education, social entrepreneurship, policy, and development. She is currently pursuing a PhD in STEM education at Tufts University in Boston. Her research focuses on developing culturally authentic STEM pedagogy models for African higher education. As an academic, she has demonstrated history in creating and researching education models that unlock learners' minds, prioritizes their critical thinking, and connects them to their innovative abilities. She's a research associate at the Institute of Governance and Economic Transformation, where she writes policy briefs that guide African leaders on policy recommendations for the transformation of the education in their countries. She's also a social entrepreneur and nonprofit leader. She is a 2022 Innocent Chukuma Social Impact Fellow, a 2021 Mandela Washington Fellow, and a 2019 African Women Entrepreneurship Cooperative Fellow. She is an alumnus of the University of Ibadan, the University of Delaware, and Lagos Business School. Toy believes that she is a bridge that connects Africa's future as an emerging community, an emerging economy, and the capacity of her people to drive this future. What an accomplished young lady. We talk about so many different things. One of them being what your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We also talk about Africa as an emerging real global player. We talk about systems and structures that she has implemented to support her life. And finally, we also talk about becoming before you do. This was such an inspiring conversation. I can't wait for you to listen. Enjoy. Hi, Toyi. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. Oh, of course. Of course. It's a pleasure to have you. So I've told the audience all about you. They're excited to get to know you as I am too. So maybe you could just kick it off. Let us know. Tell us a little bit about you. Let us get to know you a little bit. Where were you born? What was life like growing up? What experience or person from your childhood has profoundly impacted you? Talk to us a little bit as we kick it off. Okay, you already know my name is Uluwatoni Ajiro Chukwemeka. And, you know, when I thought about the question of who has profoundly impacted me, it wasn't difficult to know who. (laughs) Like, the answer came to me clearly. It was so obvious. Of course, it was my mom. And I I know everybody celebrates their mom. And of course, moms need to be celebrated. But beyond, I think of my mom not just as my mom, but also as a matrach of a matrach in a, a sense of pursuit of purpose, living with her, seeing her life has profoundly impacted me in unbelievable ways. There are so many things I can talk about, but the one that always ring a bell in my mind quickly 
is my experience of seeing her go back to school. She went back to the university around, she was already 40, over 40. Had, she was working, had four kids. I was the last born. I was in primary something. And then she insisted that she wanted to have a bachelor's degree. And if there's anything that we know in my in my house is that when my mom wants to do something, she does it. <laughs> That's it. I don't we 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 are so we're so used to that. We already know. When when she set her mind to something, you can't convince her out of it. Especially when she's so sure that you know that's what she's supposed to do. She's prayed about it and all of that. No matter what the challenges are, she was going to pull through. And she did pull through. Going to school meant she, she had to go. So, so she teaches. Her work is, she, she was a teacher at primary school, a government primary school. She, that's what she did for like 30, 35 years. So she usually goes to school during the during their breaks. So even when she's home, of course, she's reading. So imagine me in primary two and my mom reading together. Yeah. Me, I'm trying to do my assignments. My mom is carrying. Sometimes she's putting her leg inside water just oh. to save her week. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I really think that she she impacted me. And my my sense of growing up, my sense of growing up was interesting. It was unique. I would call it unique now because I didn't I didn't think it was then. I grew up in a family of four had an elder sister and two older brothers. And I usually call myself another generation in my family <laughs> because my immediate brother is like 10 years older than me. Wow. So yeah. I, I used to feel like you people are of one generation. Yeah. I am of another. But so my, my experience was I was that I was I was a last one. I was not really a last born, a last one that was very independent, not so dependent on my my elder ones, because for crying out loud, my my older brother, my immediate older brother was already in, was already in university when I was in primary three or so. <laughs> so I didn't get, really get to live with them unless, you know, they come home for breaks. And my sister got married when I was in primary five. Just that, that uniqueness. But I think probably the most unique thing that really marked who I am now growing up was two things, actually. First was a sense of independence. I grew up in a home that was a just home. Let me call it that way. I, I didn't think of it that way then, but seeing what I know about how the world works now, I realized my parents went extra mile to ensure that we, we, we face the world with a sense of justice. And when I say justice now, I mean justice in the way you think about yourself, justice in the way you think about the world, justice in the way you think about others. So things like gender parity was not a thing in my house. Like it was not, there was nothing like his girls that cook, his, that kind of thing. Was, it was when I went to university, I started telling you some of this, and it was very strange to me, like, are you people telling me it's girls that cook? Are you joking? Like all of these things are not, my, my parents raised us to be very independent. They raised us to be able to live without them, to be able to make your own decisions, stand by it, convince others. So even when we're growing up, major family decisions pass through all of us. So we, we all had, we all, we all had a say in what my family does. We, you know, major issues. You don't just decide the school for me, for example, <laughs> you don't just decide something for me. You have to come into the so come into the conversation. So I had this very unique sense of of responsibility, of independence, and of a sense of fairness. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. 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 No, this is, you know, you're starting to give us some clues as to where your excellence comes from, you know, the way that you were raised from your mother and just, you, you know, to that point, you graduated with a first class honors degree in geology. And so for those living in the U.S., it's the, the summa cum laude, right, which is the highest academic honors available. And since then, you've gone on to achieve so many outstanding accomplishments. And now I'm starting to understand why just seeing your mom, her grit, her determination, her you know, willingness to stick at it, regardless of how hard it is, you know? So that's great. I'm glad you told us about that. So based on that, and I think we already know the answer, could you talk to us about what drives you and where you get your source of strength? Hmm. I think I, I, I would say that my biggest drive is really my relationship with God. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean that religiously. <laughs> I don't mean that religiously. I, I mean that in very practical terms. Let me give you an example. Back in university, in my undergraduate, in my undergraduate years, and what actually kept me going, even when I was tired, in terms of academics and all of that, and graduating well, it was not really because I wanted to be the best student. To be honest, I used to tell people I didn't come into university thinking, oh, I want to make a first class or I want to be the best student. Honestly, I didn't come with all of that. I just came with a sense that I wanted to do my best. That was, that was, that was, I had a very, I wasn't trying to really compete with people and say, oh, I'll be the best. No, not necessarily. I just wanted to do my best, ensure that I do my best. And being in the university where I actually really began to grow my relationship with God, it even made it more interesting. I remember that times, I can give you an example of times when maybe I, I did not do any test and I knew it was because I didn't I probably didn't pick care well and all of that. The first thing that really bothers me is not the score. It's the fact that I, I, I feel like I have not maximized the the gifting that God has give, given to me. And what I do first is actually to apologize to God. So I go back to God and pray and really apologize. And Lord, I'm sorry. I, I I could have done well. It's not because I couldn't. It's because I didn't, I, I didn't put my mind to it. So there was this sense of whatsoever my hand finds to do, I was going to do wow. it with all of my mind, with I all of my that. might that I was running with. There was this sense of, in fact, one of my principles then was that everything I do, I was going to do it as a representative of the Lord. So the question is, if if God, if I, I saw myself as, in fact, my the nickname I gave myself there was Jesus Rep. You see it in all of my notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you see it in all of my notes. I wrote it, Jesus Rep, Jesus Rep. That's why it's it just to remind myself. So my drive was really from a perspective of the scriptures. The Bible says whatsoever your hand finds to do. You do it with all of your mind. That was that was my basic drive. It wasn't necessarily because I thought I was going to maybe be best student. I want to. I didn't. I didn't really see myself as somebody that really had dreams and ambitions like that. To be honest, in fact, when I was growing up, I used to think I was one of those. People. We used to call them NFE, no future yeah. ambition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, that was the way I saw myself. That was my self talk at that yeah. time in my life. But yeah. there was only one thing that I knew was that at every instant, at every point in time, I was going to do the best. I was going to do the possible best that I, I could do. If this there's awesome. any extra mile that I could go, I would go. I would yeah. go to the mile. If there's any extra thing I could do, if there's any extra way I could make it better, that was what was wrong. I, I can summarize it into 
whatsoever your hand finds to do, we do it with all of your might. But of course, as I also now grew in my relationship with the Lord, it, it began to tr- move from the generic whatsoever your hand finds to do to a more specific sense of assignment, a more specific sense of, I began to know that, oh, there's this conversation of purpose, of knowing that God has sent me to this world for some very specific things, the specific things he wanted me to do. And those became my, those things became the the things that really keep me going. And so when I get tired, I just need to remind myself of the things that God has said to me that you need to do this, you need to do that. These are the things, these are the lives that are connected to you. And it sort of brings me back, brings me back. So I've answered that question in two ways for a reason. I answer that question because I understand that some of your, some of the people who are going to be listening to this are people who might not necessarily have had those very strong conversations about purpose assignment. And it's fine. Even at that level, even at that level, is a sense of generic just driving towards wanting to do your best. It's good enough. As you continue in that, the things that you're supposed to, your life is supposed to be about begins to open up. As you continue in that sense of whatever God has put in your hand at an instant, is it study, is it work, is it a business or anything like that, you're going to do your best at it. As you continue, that's when the purpose of some of those things begin to unfold. That's what I found in my own life. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, you're, you're speaking my language. The people that know my audience know that I am passionate about purpose. That's the whole reason this exists, right? Purpose and assignment. So I love what you said. And, and you know, it's interesting. I've only known you for a short time, but in that short time, I found you to be such an inspiration. I, I you know, I went and followed you on LinkedIn. So I have some questions about your post too, which, <laughs> you know, which I'm really, really excited to ask you about. But I have found that you have a strong passion for Africa and social entrepreneurship, which I find so inspiring. Have you been able to combine your interests in social entrepreneurship with your love for the continent? How do you merge the two? That's a very interesting question. Thank you for that. Honestly, I have never thought about it in something as something I need to merge. Yeah. I've thought about it more as something that is seated within the other. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like my love for Africa is the bigger circle. And my interest in social entrepreneurship sits within that. So the way I think of my interest in Africa, the way I like to see it is Africa is, is, is I don't want to say developing. Developing is a very equivocal word, so I don't want to use that. Let me say Africa is emerging as a, is emerging towards its potential as a real global player. And I'm beginning to see, at least from my own experience and the things I've observed, read, researched and all of that, I'm seeing that the the proper way for you to really emerge the way it's supposed to is to actually have Africans being at the at the driver of that emergence. Do you understand? So basically, I think of it as Africans need to be at the driving end of the emergence of Africa, such that all of the emergence and all of that we're talking about will not just be something that is happening on African soil. Why not touching the African people? Yes. Because that's 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 a real possibility. It's possible that you know Africa is emerging just because 
companies are floating, but the owners of the companies are not Africans. The people who are working in the companies are not Africans. It's just happening in African soil and we're all celebrated. So my interest in social entrepreneurship is from that perspective. So social entrepreneurship, in fact, all of my works fit into that, that place, that place of sort of, I, I think of my work as really empowering, let me use a word, empowering the people who are going to be at the driver's seat of the future emergence of Africa. So social entrepreneurship is one part of it. In that part of my work is where I am interested in that, in really refining, if I can call it that here, refining the latent entrepreneurial entrepreneurial tendencies of the of the average African. The average African is very entrepreneurial in their thinking. We are business-minded. We we just don't realize it, but we are. We are extremely business-minded. We we have all of these things, in, even in our daily interactions, even in the way we think about it, the way we think about life. But it is not refined enough to be able to be, to really produce the kind of values it can produce for us. And that's where my interest in social entrepreneurship is. So what we've what what my work has been, it's been multifaceted, but I think the central of it has been my work at the nonprofit, the nonprofit organization that I founded five years ago that trains entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs in Nigeria and a couple of other African countries. We know we, we train them through entrepreneurial education, entrepreneurial thinking, connect them with mentors who are business owners and and stuff like that. So the real goal of it is to really refine their capacity to be able to create entrepreneurial development in Africa, basically. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing. I, this is so awesome. You know, and as you were talking, I was thinking about another, I have two questions as a follow on to that. The first one is, you know, we talked in the beginning about the fact that you have a first class honors degree in, mm-hmm. in geology, right? So when you were studying geology in the university, which is very much, I'm sure, a male dominant, dominated profession. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that because I know there are members of the audience who are interested in STEM and maybe you can talk about what it's like to be in a male dominated field. And then maybe the second part of that is obviously you're, I know you're doing a doctorate now. So how mm-hmm. talk to us as, as a follow on from that. So the first part is talk to us about the male dominated field and people interested in STEM, but talk to us also a little bit about your doctorate program as well and how that relates to your social entrepreneurship and your greater vision. Okay. So I'm going to start from the last question. Because yes. I think before I start talking about STEM, so that the audience is not confused, like, oh, you are talking about entrepreneurship right now. How are you talking about geology again? And then yeah, I yeah, yeah. focus in education. Yeah. You know, for, for a long time, my, my life felt very scattered at a point. Like, why am I interested in things that are not connected? I'm in geology. I was lecturing in geology. I'm doing entrepreneurship. Now I'm in education. The first thing, I'm going to first of all go back to what I said earlier in when I was talking about drive and whatsoever your hand finds to do. And it's in the journey that all of these things get clearer. I, I think I would just say that was what happened with me. It was in the journey of doing geology and continuing to do it that I began to see that I really began to see what, what were the things that were really catching my attention. I feel that because the truth is the way the world is designed right now, all of this going in different directions is, is, is going to keep happening. And I need more people to be more flexible in their heart. So for me, I, I, I like to call myself, I'm not a career-oriented person. I'm a mission-oriented person. And the difference between a mission-oriented person and a career-oriented person is a mission-oriented person knows that careers can change. A mission-oriented person knows that 
what is really important is the mission. The way you eventually get to do it might change with time, but you are okay because you don't feel like you have lost anything. So having done nine years or 10 years in geology and now doing a doctorate in education and talking about human capital development might look like, are you, have you not wasted your time? No, I didn't waste my time. So back to your question about STEM. When I was in geology, and honestly, in a way, I still don't think that I've completely left because my education doctorate is actually STEM education. So my background in sciences really helps me to be able to talk about science education because I've been a student, I've been a lecturer in science education in that sense before I'm not doing research in it. Now, to your question about the whole issue of main dominated, I remember that when I when I started geology, there's a there's something they used to say in my department then that geology is a man's course, and that everybody is a man. In that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what you look like. Just think of yourself that you are a man. On the field, there's no lady. We actually see all of those things. I'm telling you, they say it's all. On the field, there's no lady. In fact, my class, we're just about six girls out of 40-something students. I can't remember. We're, we're that small. We're, we're that small that I remember all of my classmates. Like, I, I of course, I'm up to 10. I can't count them in, in my 10 fingers <laughs> of the people that I had class with. Both and... It was even more unique for me because I was I was the top of the class. I graduated as the best student in the class, and I was consistently the best student from our first year to the first to the final year. So being a place where they say, ah, it's a you know, it's a male thing and this, and being a lady leading the class, it was sort of dicing. But for me as an individual, what really helped me was to go back to my family values. In my family, what we have is human, not woman or man. And I'm so grateful for how my parents did that. I'm not sure they even realized the weight of what they did for me as a person. So I, I enter into any place I enter, not as necessarily as a woman. Now, I, I'm going to put a caveat to that. Of course, it's not as if I'm not, I'm not conscious of my, of my femininity, not that. But I enter first as a human being. So I enter first with the sense that I'm a human being just like every other human being here. Let's first of all leave what we all look like. Let's leave that on the table. Human being, who am I here? And that has really, 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 really helped me. It has really, really helped me. So even when people say things that will probably make women feel imposter syndrome in a place, it doesn't affect me because I'm not saying what you're saying. I'm dealing from a whole different perspective. And honestly, I think that is how I would like to raise my children to, is to, yes, I need you to know that you are female and that comes with particular biological realities and all of that. But I need you to first of all, think of yourself as a human being before you think of yourself as, as any other thing. So that, that has helped me. It has, it has brought that sense of nobody can argue my humanness out of me because I'm a woman. So you can't tell me there's something that man can do and I cannot do because it's not making sense to me because I'm human. They are human too. And that, that ideology has really helped me. I think it's what is still probably sustaining because I still deal with a lot of things that people feel. Woman, I've met a lot of people that feel that, you know, you are too ambitious. You have too many dreams and all of that. But it doesn't, I'm not even trying to fight you. I'm not trying to convince you that, no, women can do it. I don't need all of that because yeah. I'm not dealing from the woman level. Yeah. I'm dealing with you from a human level. And you can't talk me out of that. I'm human. You're human too. Yeah. That's my answer. 
No, no, and that's actually very helpful. It's a, it's a very, very, very helpful response, you know. And as you were talking, I w- I'd love to know, you know, we, if we go, I know this seems like we're jumping around, but I want to make sure that I touch every question, right? right? So as you talk about your mission, and I love how you said you're mission-oriented and the way that you achieve that mission can change. That's so profound. So as we talk about some of the global challenges, if you think about your passion on the, uh, regarding Africa and the continent, what, in your opinion, are some of the most pressing global challenges and what will they be in the coming years? And then following on from that, as people are listening, because you're obviously ambitious, we, we know, and you're looking at Africa and the, and the global challenges on a large scale, as individuals are listening, how might they be able to contribute on a smaller scale to some of these global challenges, even if it's in their communities or in their families or in their places of work. So talk mm-hmm. to us about that. So, of course, you already know that there are so many global challenges. But the one that I am, I'm, I'm going to be biased here, the one that probably keeps me awake the most at night <laughs> is the human capital deficits that we are, we are beginning to experience the human capital deficits that we're, we're experiencing, particularly in Africa. I think that we didn't realize it. And the the fact that the world became more globalized began to really open our eyes to it. You know, we're comfortable in our, I don't want to call it mediocrity, but permit me to use that word. <laughs> but until we began to, the world became very globalized and we began to see that, you know, nowadays being in, University of Ibadan, you think the people you are competing with for jobs are the people in Nigeria. It's wrong. It's not true. You are competing with the, with the global world. And these people have a lot more advantage than us. You know, I remember when I when I came to the United States and I was at my, my first store around the school, the facilities. I remember one of my, myself and one of my Nigerians were like, my God, I was supposed to compete with these people. You know, the facilities are there, the infrastructures are there, and all of those issues. Honestly, and that's why I said that my, my first issue is the human capital develop deficit. But even beyond Africa, the sporadic rise of technology in terms of AI and all of these things have begun to show us that even the developed world need to watch their backs. Mm-hmm. We need to all watch our backs in terms of how can we develop this the skills, you know, the capacities, the 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 human capital that we need to actually survive even as individuals, to really build our communities and to actually build our economies. So that's my that's probably my biggest, biggest issue now, particularly in Africa. Human capital deficit is a big deal. Africa countries generally have some of the lowest human capital index score in the entire globe. They rank among the countries with the lowest, lowest. And we and Thinking of Africa that have a lot of young people, it's a bad combination. If yeah. there's projections that by 2050, over 60% of Africans are going to be less than 35. That's that's wow. yeah, that's that's incredible. Imagine that many people, that many people with little skills to survive in a world that is blowing up. It's 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 mind-blowing. Of course, there are other issues too. Issues of, I think the way I like to call it now is deep-seated divisions. And that borders on the issues of peace and security. Different different versions of the world have it in different ways. In Nigeria, we have it as all of these intertribal issues and all of that. In places like the US, we have it as racial issues and all of those issues. In other places, we have it 
it's, it, it shows itself in different names yeah. in different places, but it's the same yeah. thing. Yeah. It's still this deep, this these deep-seated divisions. And of course, the third one I'll probably also point out is the sustainability issues. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are we are we are running on a tight budget here in terms of environmental sustainability and all of not even just environment, sustainability as a we are running on a very tight budget because the resources that the the number the number the way we are increasing and the need, not just that we are increasing, but our needs are increasing. Compared to the the resources that the, that nature normally affords us, it's it's a yeah, there's a mismatch. Yeah. Now, so your question about how can individuals like individuals on their own really contribute to these things? Honestly, I'll come back to first of all saying my my golden rule: whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. And the reason I'm starting that way is this. I feel that particularly young people, I've with a lot of young people across different countries, Nigeria, Liberia, different places, and I've seen a common trend. Everyone wants to quickly want to do something big. You know, we, we think the problems are so much, we need to do something big. But I have found that what would eventually make even the big things that you do meaningful is if you really started in the grassroots. And when I say grassroots now, I don't just even mean programs. I mean even in your own heart. The little thing that you are doing right now, how are you doing it? Because it's in the doing that, and whatever, whatever it is, you are studying, you are in a career, you are in a job, you are starting a business, that's one that you, is in your hands right now. How are you managing it? It's in the faithfulness of that. It's this, I believe in the scripture, so it's a scriptural principle. It says, who will give you, if you are not faithful in little, who will give you much? It's as simple as that. So, the issues of what can you do, how can you be a part of it, is what you are doing right now. Do it from the perspective of someone who wants to solve problems for their localities. Do it from the perspective of someone who wants to solve problems for their communities. Imagine that, say, for example, in when I was working in the university, I was a very young lecturer in my 20s. I'm not sure my family has ever had anybody that young before. And... What really guided the way, because I, I, I felt a lot of changes that even after I've left, some of my senior colleagues reached me and tell me, oh, I like the way you did this. Can you teach me how to do that and all of that? What really led me was simple. It wasn't because I was trying to be a change maker in that necessary sense. It was just, I was asking myself, what are the issues that I've seen in the world and how can I use this one that is in my hand to make a difference? So I knew that I was not going to be teaching the way I was taught because the way I was taught is not working anymore. Yeah. I knew that I needed to prepare my students beyond just the academics into sense of problem solving, leadership. So I incorporated all of these things into the work I was doing. I didn't need to go and create something to solve that problem. I could do the worst in my hand. So the problem, the issue is this, is I need you to think as a problem solver. The problems in your locality that you are most concerned about right now, ask yourself in the things that you're doing, in the things that are in your hands right now, if you are thinking from a problem solver perspective, how will you do them? As you start that way, is as you continue that the bigger ways you can do them will come. It was because I was teaching that I eventually realized I needed to do a PhD in education. It wasn't because three years ago, if anybody told me I was going to do a PhD in education, I would not have believed it because what am I 
education. Never been a thing in my mind to do a PhD. But as I continued, I started seeing bigger ways to address the problem. I discovered that, oh, I was trying to solve a problem in education, but solving it, I started with, with my class, but I began to see that I needed to address it bigger than my class. So how can I address it bigger than my class? Was to go into education, be able to equip other teachers that can now equip their own classes. Do you see the, the ripple effect in there? Yeah. I do, I do, I do. And as you're talking, I thought about another question, which I read or I read one of your posts on LinkedIn, which kind of went viral. As you're talking about your decision to do a PhD in education three years ago, you weren't thinking about it. You talked about how the first time you applied, you know, with, with even though you had a you know first class degree and all the rest of it, you applied to all these schools, but you didn't get into. Mm-hmm. I think you didn't get into any of them. And then the second yeah. time, you, you talked to us about the timing, and that post was so profound. So I don't want to tell the the audience what you said. I want you to say it yourself. So talk to us about that process. I think it was so amazing. Okay, so the summary of it was that I, I wanted to do a PhD in geology then, in economic geology, and I I did all of this I was supposed to do, did the GRE, the test of English, the all of the things I needed to do, the recommendation, statement of purpose, I did all of that. Did it in eight months, had amazing GRE score, like 320 over 314 GRE and all of that. And I applied, and the first school said no, which was absolutely shocking. <laughs> it was it will be. <laughs> it was. It was. I remember that one of my friend who was in a, the school that was supposed to be like my my safety net because there's always that advice that you choose a safety net school. The schools that you know what I mean. You're in yeah. the US. You know what I mean. <laughs> and that was the school that actually said no first. And I remember when I shared with my friend that was there, she was like, "Wait, what? How?" How are they telling you? And looking back, I realized that, honestly, there was just this sense of serendipity in it. The hand of God was inside of it because it gave me time to reassess. At that point, of course, I had been interested in education, but I I didn't see it as something, I don't know, maybe part of the way we've we've seen education in in this side of the world as this thing that you do when you don't have any other choice. <laughs> you know, many people came to do education because they didn't have to. And that's why a lot of people usually are usually shocked when I tell them I was lecturing. Like, it's almost like it's after you have done things and it's not working and you now come back into the university as a lecturer. Why are you starting out your life that way? In fact, my students used to ask me in class that, man, why are you teaching us? Like, imagine my students. I, I don't know how many times different students have asked me that question in different ways. Now, given that time, that time gave me time to really reassess and ask myself, what do I really want to do? I didn't realize how much the fact that I was successful in geology and everybody already knew me to be so a successful scientist and all of that had put me in a box. So I didn't see myself living it. And somewhat, it was even stressful thinking about it because so many people were involved. I, In a way, success makes you become a community project. So everybody has an idea of what they want you to do. Everybody has an ideal. In fact, I remember when I finished my second master's, when I finished my second master's, one one of my friends already reached out and said, oh, next thing is PhD. Don't worry, I'll help you look for the school. That's how you become. Everybody just feels that, you know, they know what you're supposed to be doing next. Your your path is already so clear. But I was in a place where I wasn't sure. At that point, I was already wondering, do I really want to continue in geology? I wasn't sure. But... I just didn't want to think through it. And the stress of, but that particular scenario forced me to go back and ask myself, do I really want to do this? 
Having that time and putting putting myself fully into my work, again, that principle, whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Putting myself fully into my work began to open my heart and I discovered that, no, I really want to do something about education in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I really want to do something about education in Africa. And I didn't even know it was possible to move because it doesn't work like that in Nigeria. You have to first of all do a PGD and all of that. It was out of just reading and all of that that I, I found somebody in the US and then we connected and, you know, one thing led to the other, she connected with my advisor and I was now doing my page in the US. The summary of that is the issue of timing. Now, timing is not, I feel like people think that timing itself is what makes things work. It's not true. And that's, that's, one, that's one clarification I need to make. It wasn't just timing itself. It was time that was being used well. Yeah. It was time that I was using to focus on the other things that were in my hand. Even if every other thing was not working, what was in my hand? My teaching work. What was in my hand? My work in social entrepreneurship. Putting all of my energies into that began to open my mind more to see even greater possibilities. That began to shift my thoughts in the direction that what if this was possible to even do a PhD in this? What if this was possible? So timing but not timing where you are just sitting down lazing around doing nothing with your life no timing that you are using effectively timing where you are honoring the principle of whatever your hand finds to do do it all of your mind. yeah 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 no i like that i like that thank you for sharing that's so awesome so you're an author you've written two books hmm. <laughs> i want to ask you about your second book driven which discusses life lessons that you've learned over the past 30 years. So maybe you can share one of the lessons because I know if they're 30, I'd love to hear all 30, but people have to get the book for that. Maybe you can share one of the most impactful lessons with us and how it's influenced your personal and professional growth. I think that was my, that was literally my other question. In fact, when I was trying to think through some of the questions ahead of time, I, that was the only one I couldn't answer. <laughs> Because it's super difficult to pick one. <laughs> I don't necessarily have a best. So trust me, whatever I choose to say, it's not necessarily the best. Everything is the best. And I, I really mean that. Okay. But I, for the purpose of the conversation that we are having now, I think I'll pick the, the chapter I wrote on courage about how courage is not a feeling. In my life today, I, I feel a lot of people meet me and feel, oh my God, you know, you're ambitious, you're so bold, you know what you want to do. And sometimes I laugh at them, I'm like, mm -hmm. that's not true. <laughs> but I understand what you're saying. I've, I've found that a, a lot of people, I, including myself, because I, it, was, it was a paradigm shift that really helped me to see that courage was not something, it was not just a, I fear I can do it, so I can the, the chapter that I think aligns the most with what we're talking about today, at least the direction of our conversation, is a chapter on, I called it Courage is Not a Feeling. I was talking about the fact that I've, I've met a lot of people who, who, who see me and feel like, oh, you're so, you know, you're so bold, you know what you're doing, you know, you're so bold, you go for what you want. And I used to look at them like, no, I'm not like that, but I understand why you might think that way. I have found that... Many people, including myself too, because it took a paradigm shift, view the sense of courage as this thing in their minds where they feel like, oh, yes, I can do it. Yes. And I found that it's not true. <laughs> I found that the way I like to say it is that courage is a little bit more systematic than that. Is Yeah, that's what I can use. It's more systematic than that. Is 
It's not, yes, of course, it has positive energy. Positive energy is part of it, but that's not all of it. There's a systematic approach to call it. And I, I was listening to the book and I was talking about how there were certain things that I found. Issues of clarity, issues of conviction, issues of commitment. Those are the things that really, really means courage. And I found that, for example, I meet people who say, you know, I want to do something, something, and I, I, you know, I'm just so fearful. And by the time I finish talking with them, I realize that what they are calling fear is not fear. It's actually lack of clarity. Yeah. It's because they don't know what they really, really want to do. Yeah. They don't know how exactly they're supposed to do it. They don't know when they want to do it. They don't know what they are trying to achieve, and they think they are, they are, they think they are afraid. They are just vague. Mm-hmm. They are vague. They are not necessarily afraid. They are just vague. Mm-hmm. If they are able to answer some of those questions, there's a sense of confidence that happens. There's a part of conviction. And, and for me personally, I personally think that there's a, there's, a, there's a serious issue happening right now, particularly with young people with the matter of conviction. I feel that we're, we're having more and more people who are not deeply rooted in a sense of belief who are not deeply, and I'm, I'm saying that deeply rooted because that's really the goal. That sense of, this is who I am. This is what I have been called to do. This is, this is the kind of unique wiring that God has given me as a, as a gift, as a tool, as a strength. All of those kind of deeply rooted convictions are missing. And that's what people are thinking that they... That, that is what is missing. I mean, people are thinking that they are just fearful. No, you are not fearful. You have not built conviction. And I said built because it's not something that just you just wake up and have. It yeah. takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time. It's the reason why, for example, myself and you went to Seychelles yeah. and paid exorbitantly to go there. It takes time to build this thing. It takes time to build conviction of seeing yourself a certain way. Mm-hmm. Nowadays... What I've made different between myself and five years ago and looks as if I can stand up and say, I want to do this and I do it. It's not necessarily because I necessarily changed or I became less fearful. I still feel fear. Mm-hmm. But today, I can, it just takes me to remember some of the things that some t- level of conviction that I've been built inside of my heart about who I am, about my role in the world. And it's, it's, it puts me in that, in that sense. Where I know that, oh, fear is there, but we conquer the fear. Yeah. So that sense of knowing that Courage is not a feeling. It's a. It's very systematic. I, I think I expand more in the book. And the beautiful thing is that the book is actually still free. I decided to continue to give the e-copy for free for life. It was, it was a decision I made because that's I just awesome. I wanted yeah. to reach out to more young people with it. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. And of course, I'll make the details available. If people want to get the free version or if they want to buy the actual paperback, I'll make that available for people to... That's to fine. purchase and, or access. So thank you so much. That's so generous of you. So, you know, as I've been listening to you and I'm sure the audience is like, ha, this, I don't know, this level, this level, I want to ask you, how do you balance your professional aspirations, your personal life, your self-care? What strategies have you put in place that help you stay motivated and focused on your goals, but still making out time to have a healthy balance, right? So self-care, enjoying some of the, the great things about life. Talk to, talk to us about that. I, I think the first answer would be a paradigm shift that I had. Remember I already mentioned that I, I was raised to be very independent. Mm-hmm. I was raised to be this person who, you know, I made my own decisions and all of that. One of the things that has really helped me with balance 
is first of all to acknowledge that I'm human. And human means you need help. <laughs> the fact that you are human, the realization that humanity by itself already confers a need for help upon you is probably the first thing that every other thing lies upon. So coming to that point where I know that, yes, I might have all of big dreams and all of that, but I will never be able to do all that I want to do and still live a healthy life, like you're saying, on my own has been the ground upon which everything is built. Mm. So basically, knowing that I need help has made me know that two things are very important to my life, systems and support. Systems and support. Let me talk about systems first. Systems is understanding that it's not every day that you will wake up and you'll be at your best. <laughs> there are days you want to wake up and you just want to sleep. Yes. You are not, you know, all of those, I can do it, I can do it, is not doing you that day. <laughs> like, you are not in that mental frame of, oh, we've got this. There are days like that. And there's no need to, there's no need to feel bad. It's just one of the days. And that's where systems come into play. Systems for me has meant understanding how I work, understanding my energies, understanding, basically putting a structure around my life, around my time, around my focus, around my energies. So, for example, I, for example, this call right now, I didn't have it earlier than this, not because I was not awake earlier than this, but because I knew that I needed to get some things done before I come do this. That's an ex a simple example. So understanding how to put six systems in your life that actually keeps you at your best, nourishes your energy, ensures that you don't deplete yourself unnecessarily, you know, ensures your focus. For example, I keep deleting places like Instagram again and again. I have it. I do my Instagram live session. As soon as I'm done, I delete the app because I don't need it to, I, I, I can't allow you to jump into my focus because I need my focus. I have a lot of things to do. I don't have time to be scrolling to Instagram and forgetting myself there. And there's no need trying to say, oh, I will, I will ensure that I don't forget myself. I have tried this plenty of times. I forgot myself. There's no point fighting it. <laughs> Better way is not just to go. <laughs> then support. Support is basically understanding that the fact that God has put something in your heart does not mean that it is just meant for you alone. Yes. So there's nothing that I do today. Absolutely nothing that I do alone. It's been a principle for me. Even if it is just one of my younger sisters that I'm going to drag into it and say, be my assistant over this thing. Mm. It, it has been a way of life. I don't do anything on my own. Mm. I have come to see that interdependence is not a weakness, it's a strength. Yes. Understanding how to leverage interdependence is a strength. There are things that I just have to guess people. When I was starting one foundation, this was one of the mistakes I made initially when I started the business. I built the business all around me. So when I needed to step out to get some other things about my life done, this business crashed because there was nobody mm -hmm. else there. Mm -hmm. So and sometimes, so when I was doing one foundation, for example, I spoke to about two other people who were like volunteers. The, of course, things have changed. People have moved and come in and all of that. But the important thing is that I have this mental frame where I know that I can't do it all. Mm -hmm. I can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to do things, I need help. Yeah. Just knowing that I need help has put me in a... And it has even influenced the way I even run, even my family and all of that. My husband is involved in many things that I do. Mm -hmm. Because even if it's just rubbing my head that he does, he does something. <laughs> It helps a bit. I'm telling you, it does. Just knowing that, mm -hmm. 
you know, I, I like to say that there's a place nowhere you are a boss woman yeah. and nowhere you yeah. are not. It's yeah. better. There's no need. You know, there's this way that people are trying to create this whole strong woman dynamic. I used to tell people, I'm not a strong woman. I don't want to be. I'm not intending to be. I am a woman on mission who knows what she wants to do and knows the kind of thing she needs to get there. And part of what she needs to get there is people, yeah. is support, is systems. Yeah. Yeah. And leveraging rest too. Understanding that productivity needs a lot of rest. Mm-hmm. Now, before I used to think that sleep was overrated. Now I know, I know I take my sleep very seriously. I take my rest very seriously because I realize that they put you in the right place where you can actually have a lot of cognitive energy to work. Yeah. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, it does. This is so awesome. So awesome, Tony. Thank you. So I guess as we start to round up, I want to ask you what are your future plans and aspirations? What can we expect from you? Expect is the wrong word. We don't expect, right? But what can we look forward to seeing from you in the coming years, both in terms of your career and your endeavors in social entrepreneurship and advocacy? Mm. Okay, so I would say anything that deals with human capital development in Africa is where you're going to be seeing me in the next few years. I love it. I have been doing that in social entrepreneurship. I've started doing that in education, but I think the nascent one for me that I've not really started talking about publicly, because that's another thing. I take time first before I start talking about what I'm doing in the public. I try to take time to really build a bit of expert. Even if you just little, know what you're talking about before you start talking about. I know people say building the public and all of that. Well, I get the point, but I'm not sure I really agree. It doesn't really align with my own my own way of seeing life. So there are things I build in the private. That's that's a conversation for another day. The other part is policy development. And it's it's because I saw that as much as many, many of my work have intersected in education and entrepreneurship has intersected research and practice. But I began to see that research and practice still are, in, are informed by policy. So I'm re- beginning to realize there's a need to actually balance the trio of research, practice, and policy. So for, in, for example, in education, I've practiced, I still practice, I still teach one way or the other. Maybe not necessarily in the university anymore, but at least one way or the other. I'm fully into research, which is what I'm doing in my doctoral degree. But I began to see that policy influences every other thing because teachers and students are not the only actors in education. Decision makers are too. They set the environment. They set the tone. They set what we value. So you, if you want to even effect long-lasting change in practice and research, you can't do that without policy. So I, I am moving into things that also involve around policy development. And in fact, that's one of the things that we did in one foundation for our 50th anniversary. We did a symposium that brought together different people who are involved, different stakeholders who are involved in youth entrepreneurship from from people in the government to academia. Basically, we began to see that there's, there needs to be that public policy level to anybody that wants to make a lasting change. So there's that side of my work that is just building, really. Yeah, I've I've done some things, but I prefer not to talk about them. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. yeah. We, well, we are excited. Yeah, <laughs> we are excited. Part of my work that, that go into that. So basically, you see me in things that involve human capital development, particularly from the sense of education, from the sense of skills, from the sense of even personal mastery, from the sense of youth entrepreneurship and things like that around those areas. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. This has been so wonderful. Is there anything that you'd like the audience to know that I didn't ask you as we round up? Uh, Okay. I think maybe probably the last thing I'll say would be 
I'll take it from what I was trying to say the other time in my last question when I was answering the other question about I feel that I, I, I have this compulsion now, I will call it compulsion, to talk wherever I go, the need to be before you do. Because I, I feel that we we there's so much doing that is going on in the world that everybody begins to view themselves, their world, their their lives only from the things that they do. And if there's anything I have learned from my experience, I've found that at the end of it, you can only do as much as who you are. The real result of your work, you can only produce after your own kind. So the real result of your work will produce who you are. So if you really, whatever you actually want to change and all of that, anything you really want to create, you need to first of all be it. Because you can, is a, is a, is a scriptural principle. I already told you I believe in the scripture. The Bible was talking about, he said, the, when, they were, when God was creating the heart, he was talking about, he was talking about fruit, whose seeds were in themselves. Basically, the seeds will produce the same fruit. So basically, whoever you are is who you will produce. So even the best way to do is to first of all deal with who you are first. So be first. That sense of being first without before doing. That sense of grounding all of your doing efforts in who you are, in, in that sense of being, that human being part is, is really crucial. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So powerful. Such a powerful way to end a lovely discussion. Tony, thank you so much for your time. Thank this you. has been awesome. This has been great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been really good. Oh, thank you for drawing welcome. these answers out of me. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode. What was your main takeaway from this episode? What did you like? What, in your opinion, are some ways that we could improve? I want to hear from you. You can reach me at ugochi at fiercemothers.com. To learn more about Fierce Mothers, please visit our website at fiercemothers.com and join our mailing list for our weekly newsletter. The newsletter provides powerful tips and inspiration for life. Please remember to like and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Fierce Mothers. Follow me on LinkedIn at Ugochi Onyewu. We are building an engaged community of Fierce Mothers, so please tell your friends about the show. See you next week. Thank you.